what an exciting day to be able to have and celebrate our high school and college graduates. Isn't it exciting to see how many we had this year? Isn't that fun? Amen. That's good. That is our church being able to have a part in their lives in some small way. And we want to say congratulations to all of our graduates. Um, we've also have a Bible that's out here for you. Um, you're welcome to take that. And uh, hopefully if you haven't had a chance and you would like to go ahead and walk out there right at the end of the service, um, our, we'll ask that our graduates, would you meet, meet us out there at the, the table so that way people can say um, hello, but they can also write a note. If you hadn't had a chance to write a note in, the, in, the, in their Bibles, we'd like to encourage you to take a moment. Um, maybe you're saying, well, pastor, I don't know all of them and that's okay. You might not know them, but you can even give just a little brief thought on maybe why one of the verses in the Bible is something important to you and just give them a note of encouragement. It's a way in which we as a church can come alongside them and and give them a gift. I still have in my office, I actually have my Bible that my pastor gave me when I graduated, his handwritten note. um, He poured into my life and I'm so thankful for him. And uh, it means a lot. He has now passed. And so what a a great treasure that is. And so we want to just as a a church, uh, give them a a momentum of just their time here. So if you don't mind, make sure you do that right after the church service. All right. If if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter five is where we're going. Ephesians chapter five. Let me start off by asking a question. Does God want you to have a happy marriage? Sure. Does God want you to be happy? Sure. We can say yes. Is happiness the highest priority? Hmm. Well, we'll have to talk about that one, won't we? Here's what's going to happen. More than likely, you've heard message series on marriages. More than likely, you have maybe even read a book about marriages. More than likely, you have probably even, maybe some of you have have gone that extra step and you've gone to a marriage conference and you've talked about marriage and and so you've studied marriage for a long time. And here's what's gonna happen. Today is probably gonna be one of the more radical messages that you've ever heard. And the reason I'm saying radical is because it flips upside down the quest of many marriage resources today. The reason I say that is because when I read through message, uh, mess, or I hear messages or maybe I hear sermons or maybe I hear um, books about marriage or maybe I've gone through, whether it's focused on the family, and I, there's so many great resources out there. I am not dogging them. But most of the time, the way it's presented and the way it's couched is this. Here's how to have a better marriage. 10 ways to love your wife better. You go to the, the, the magazine rack as you're checking out. It's 10 ways to love your husband. 10 ways to let your husband love you better, right? There's all kinds of articles and everything pushes you towards happiness, but happiness is at the center of what I want and what I need to happen. If my wife can fulfill my needs this way, then I'll have a better marriage. Or if I fulfill my wife's needs the way she needs it to be filled, then we'll have a better, better marriage. And here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to take you back to the scripture and I want to walk you through what you're tied to is what you follow. What you hear is what you follow. What you understand and what you believe is how you act. And what I want us to do is I want to show you that there's a higher calling than just being happy. Because what you're tied to is what you follow. There was a, a couple men, they were out hunting. And as they were out hunting, they came up on this, this barn and the barn was about to fall down. It was, it was an old farmhouse and they, they start walking around the, the, this, this pasture land and, and they start looking and they realize that it's not abandoned. At first they thought it was abandoned, but now as they begin to look, they see chickens, they see a goat, they see some cows. And so they're just walking around and, and as they're looking around, they see car parts everywhere. And so 
they come up to this well and they see this well. And the one guy said to the other, I wonder how deep it is. So if you wonder how deep something is, what is the next step? You got to throw something into it, right? Of course, you got to throw something into it. And then you count one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three. Have you ever counted like that? That was how I was taught how to count. You had to count slow. You can't do it fast. One Mississippi, two Mississippi. And so what they did is they started looking around. They didn't find any rocks. And so they grabbed the transmission that was right there. So they just picked up the transmission and they dump it over into the well. And so they start counting one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, hit four Mississippi. Wow, that's a deep hole. And they start laughing and talking. And then they start, they turn around to leave. And all of a sudden the goat is charging them, head down, horns coming at them. And so they're jumping out of the way and they watch as the goat hits the side of the well and falls over in. They're going, no way did that just happen? And they start laughing and, and they're just kind of cutting up. And then the, the farmer comes out. The farmer heard all the ruckus, ruckus and he comes out and he said, hey guys, what's going on? And they get permission to keep walking through his field so they can go on and finish hunting. And uh, as they're leaving, the, the farmer turns and says, hey, have you seen my goat? They said, by the way, that goat's crazy. He's, he's, he attacked us. He came charging at us. He, you need to tie that goat up. What do you think the farmer said? I thought he was tied up to my transmission. <laughs> you follow whatever you're tied to. Did you get the point? I know I, it's a stretch, I'm telling you, but I'm trying to get you there. You, you follow whatever you're tied to. <laughs> okay, more than likely, you'll remember that story this week and go, man, that preacher, man, he's goofy. All right, but you tie, you're, whatever you're, follow, you're tied to, you follow, all right? Ephesians chapter five, here's what we laid out last week. We laid out last week that Paul gives us a different type of definition of love. That love is something that you put into action. That's why he commands it. It is a command. You are to love. And it doesn't mean it's just some feeling. He moves us beyond feeling into an action and says, this is how you are to do it. Love in action. It has to be something you do, not necessarily something you feel. Are you following? Then we moved us into love and we said, love has to be pointing to God. That's the goal. It has to be love in action, pointing to God. And then it is sacrificial. And now we're gonna move to the next step. What is the next step? Ephesians chapter five, verse 25. We're gonna read 26 as well. 26 is where we're gonna be focusing in today. If you would stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter five, go down to verse 25 and here's what it says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this day and I thank you for your blessings and your goodness, your grace. God, I am thankful for a group of people who are willing to gather in your name to sing praises to you. God, I pray that it has been a sweet, sweet sound. And now as we look into your word, I pray that the Holy Spirit would have freedom to work in this place Do what we cannot do. God, I pray that you'd speak directly to us right where our hearts need it most so that, Father, we walk out of here knowing that we've heard from you. I pray that you'd give us the courage to apply to our lives what we've heard. We'll give you all the praise. We'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said,
Amen. Thank you. May be seated. All right. If you were, um, as you were walking into, there's a good chance that you saw out in the foyer some decorations. That decoration is for you to actually tweet. How many of you are on Twitter? All right. There's a few of you. How many are on Facebook? All right, very good. Here's what we want to encourage you to do. Go out to uh, that front, take a picture, post it on Facebook or post it on Twitter, and just let people know that we're talking about uh, holy marriage. That's my wife and I, and uh, we, we posted that just a few minutes ago. Go out there, post that, just let people know we're talking about it. It's just a fun way in which to uh, celebrate um, what we're talking about here. Let's get started. If you have your, your notes, I would encourage you to take out your notes out of the, um, the bulletin, and you'll be able to follow along. You can fill in the blanks in just a second, and we'll also walk us through. We, have, we are a culture. Here's your first blank. We are a culture obsessed with happiness. More than likely, you will think, and more than likely you feel, and even if you would disagree with it, the way in which we live quite often moves us to say that this is our highest priority as Americans, that we want happiness at whatever it takes, whatever the cost. So if our job doesn't make us happy, we leave. If our boss is upset and we don't like our boss anymore, we get mad, we leave. If our spouse no longer makes us happy, get a new spouse. If our kids don't make us happy, uh, (laughs) I don't know what you do. That's your business, right? So, So we want to go after happiness. And our goal is if we don't find happiness, we trade it in. We burn it down. We judge it. We get mad at it. We throw fits about it. If we can't find happiness, we go after happiness at whatever the stakes, whatever the cost. And if something doesn't make us happy, we get rid of it as fast as we can. Let me backtrack a little bit if I can, because I would like to help us understand how this began to be a part of our culture. Do you remember back in the 1500s, there was a man named William Shakespeare? Have you ever heard of him? Okay, he's been, he's been defined as one of the most influential writers of the, the uh, English-speaking world, the even American Western mindset. He revolutionized the idea of what love is. He began to write plays, and he was a poet, and he would, he would write sonnets, and he would write all kinds of things, and what he would do is he would transcribe and tell us that love is something different than just action. Maybe you remember one of those famous plays, Romeo and, all right, Romeo and Juliet. You have this couple who, because they love each other so much, they're willing to to fight all the odds and go against everything in order to love. And matter of fact, they believe that their love was so strong that they were willing to even die so that they could be together. Do you remember this? Fast forward from the 1500s into the 18th century. We move into now poets such as Blake and Coolidge, and there's several others. And as they begin to write, here's what they begin to write and they begin to teach. That it's a sin against yourself to marry somebody for any other reason than love. And you're going, every one of us is going, of course, that is a sin. I mean, you, who would have ever dreamed that you would marry for any other reasons outside of just love, Right? And we began to hear it and it becomes part of the society. And we began to just take it in and we began to say, this is true. This is who we are. You move into the, the 1900s. There was a man named C.S. Lewis. You remember him? Okay, he writes, he writes a, um, a story. It's called the, the Screwtape Letters. Anybody read that? Okay, the Screwtape Letters. It's about a, um, a demon 
who's actually talking, okay? He's, he, he's, it's his letters, and he's talking about how they're trying to connive and, and trick humans. And C.S. Lewis even talks about this romantic love that we're so fond of. And here's how he, he puts it. Screwtape is talking. And as Screwtape is talking, he begins to gloat and mock humans. Quote, humans who have, the, who have not the gift of sexual abstinence can be deterred from seeking marriage as a solution because they do not find themselves in love. And thanks to us, the idea of marrying with any other motives seems to them low and cynical. Yes, they really think that. They regard the intention of chastity for the transmission of mutual help as something lower than a storm of emotion, end quote. The way we have defined and the way we as a culture have defined love is this. It's this emotional storm. It's this romantic love in which we have to have. And once we don't have it, then we are no longer in love because we don't feel like we're in love. Are you tracking with this? Now let me go back and go back in history and, and start defining even for you how, how the church responded. So in the early centuries of the church, the church began to say, well, marriage is not technically bad but it's a necessary evil. So if you have to get married, then get married. You have sex so that you can have kids and that's it. It's not about having fun. It's just, it's just a necessary evil. Then people began to say, well, I don't know if that's quite right. So they began to move forward. And then, then you get into this time period in which the church began to say, because marriage is so bad that it, if you really want to be spiritual, now only if you really want to be spiritual, this is what you need to do. You need to not be married. You need to be celibate. Do you remember this time in church history? Celibacy became the highest priority. If you're really going to be spiritual, then don't get married, go away and, and, and isolate yourself. And so people isolated themselves and they said, this is my, 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 my ability to get close to God. It's my holiness. Now, I'm not talking negative about celibacy and I'm not talking negative about marriage. I'm just giving you where we're at. And now we move to this time period here where within the church, we have become so infatuated with the emotional storm of what we call love that we have no longer remember what love is really called to do. So here's what we have. Let me help make sure you understand why it's a problem to have romantic love as a base. I'll be real honest. It would be a lot more fun to be having a sermon series about how to ignite the flame in your spouse. It would be a lot more fun to say, woohoo, this is gonna be a fun one. Everybody, I mean, we want to come to figure out how to keep those flames alive. And that's another sermon and that's another series. And I am not against having romantic love. I've been married now for... <laughs> Just say, man, you put me on the spot. I just did that to myself. Um, I've been married for 15 years. August will be 16 years. And I hope and I pray that my wife and I continue to have that romantic love. Okay? But if that cannot be my basis, and here's why. If that's my first foundation and the way in which I determine if she loves me and if I love her, if I have this feeling and this emotional storm of love, then here's what happens. What do you do when pain, tragedy, friction comes into the marriage. And it will come to the marriage. There will be moments in which your marriage 
will not feel like you're in love. There will be moments, you have a few kids under the age of four, under the age of five, you're not gonna feel like you're in love for a while. You're gonna be sleepless. There's nobody gonna, I mean, you're just worn out and you just wish the kids would just, just be quiet for a little bit. What happens when you lose your job? What happens when tragedy comes in? What happens if there's a handicap in your home? What happens when cancer hits your home? Listen, I have been around the block long enough to walk with people and walk with marriages long enough. And I have been married long enough to feel the pain and the frustration in my own marriage, to walk with couples who have dealt with pain and struggles in their own life. And here's the reality. When you think it's all about romantic love, when that tragedy hits, when that heartache comes, here's what you'll do. You'll say, whoop, we don't feel like we're in love. I'm out. I just don't love you anymore. And what you do is you begin to get onto a cycle in which every few months, every year, you have to have another fling in order to actually get that romantic buzz that you're looking for. Romantic love does not have the elasticity to handle pain. Are you following me? Have you felt it? Have you ever seen it? You will not feel like you're in love and there will be moments in your marriage where you will not feel like love. Walking with people and couples who have had a death or whether it's cancer or other tragedy that hits their, their, their life, you begin to understand that romantic love might not be the highest priority. And here's what I wanna share with you. If you want to move to the next level, if you want to go to the next level in your love and in your relationship, you are gonna have to begin to break this idea that romantic love is the highest order. It's not the highest. It's foundational, it's base, it's just there. There are so many deeper levels of love. And what we do is we have short-circuited our entire society because all we think is Love is this emotional ecstasy that we have, this affair, this fling, and we want it over and over again. Now, here's where I'm gonna take you back to the scripture. You ready? Watch what he does. Watch what Paul does. He defines in verse 25, he defines love for us. He said, love in action, love that points to God, love that actually sacrifices. And if he was going to say, in our Western mentality, if his logical progression was going to say, you do this so that you'll be happy, this is where it would happen. And he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He moves us beyond it and he actually says something very radical, very different. He says this, look at verse six. That you may be happy, no. That your spouse may be happy, no. What does he say? That you might what? Do you see it? Sanctify, make them holy. Why in the world would he do this? Why would he go here? And here's the reality. He goes here because holiness is a higher priority than your happiness. Now, I know it's hard to believe, but here's what's gonna happen. There will be moments when you have that pain. It's like that little boy who, who, who was sitting on the, the, the porch. His dad was coming home, and as his dad was coming home, he usually jumps up and runs to his dad. But this day he had his hands holding his head. He was just sitting there pouting. The dad gets out of the car. Hey, bud, 
comes over and sits next to him. What's going on? What's wrong? And the little boy looks up and he says, Dad, just to be honest, between you and me, I'm having problems with your wife too. (laughs) You gotta love the honesty of the little kids, right? There are gonna be problems. And here's what I want. I want for you and I want for your marriage. And if you're dating right now, I want you to actually begin to start by a whole new level. I want you to understand that there's something higher than the happiness. Now, here's what it is. It's holiness. Holiness becomes a higher level. He says, I want you to love, and this is how I want you to love, and this is how God's showing you how to love. He said, so that you might be sanctified. What is sanctified? It's the sanctification. It's the process of becoming more like Jesus. Your highest goal and my highest goal as a believer is to what? Become more like Jesus. You see, it's an understood statement in Paul's thinking. Whether you're reading any of his letters, he says the highest goal, my highest goal, my highest purpose is to know Jesus Christ, him crucified, and to live in resurrection power. That's my highest goal. Are you tracking with this? Paul then goes on and he says, okay, for me to live, if I live with Jesus Christ as a priority, understanding his death and and living in the power of his resurrection, then he says, for me to live as Christ, then to die is what? Gain. This is his call. He said, this is it, to sanctify myself so I go forward. What's hard is this, to sanctify, to set apart for that which is holy other, something that's holy better, something that's not the norm, something that's other than what I am. We have a hard concept. This is hard for us. A few weeks ago, thanks to the church, I had the privilege of going to Jerusalem. And while I was there, we had the chance to go up to the Temple Mount. And as we're about to enter, here's what they do. They separate men and women. So men have to go on one side, women have to go on the other side, and you actually have to go through these lines, and this is before we get to the temple. It was interesting because I'm now watching. I'm watching as people progress. I'm watching how even the Jews would come to the temple. And as they were approaching the temple, as they were approaching this holy site, the Jews who were very orthodox, they're reading They have verses and prayers that they're reading and psalms that they're reading and they're praying it as they go up and then they separate and they made it very clear. Hey, once you're up here in this area, it doesn't matter if you're married or not, do not touch your wife. You have to keep a separation. Don't don't even touch her arm, don't touch it. Just keep a separation. You have to stay separate. So then we come up and, and we go through the line and as we get through the line, we open up into this courtyard and we're getting close to the welling wall, right? And as we get there, then again, you're still separate. Men over here on the left, ladies over here on the right. And before you would actually go forward, there was this place in which you would begin to wash. And there was a ceremonial washing and ceremonial cleansing. And they're washing their hands and they had a certain way in which they would do it. And then after they washed, then they would take and they would pick up their Bibles again. And they had certain phrases that they would read as they're now walking closer to the holy site. And as they get closer... Then they get up there and they begin to pray. And as they pray against, uh, to this, at this wall, this holy site, then they have certain rituals in which they're, they're, they're praying and they have certain ways in which they pray and they teach their young ones how to pray. And I was just fascinated by it. Because in my, in my culture, I mean, hey, I dressed up if I wore boots, right? I mean, that's just, I, that was good when I was growing up. That was, that was what you did. And as I began to see how they approached, and then when they walked away, here's what they would do. As they left the holy 
they would not turn their backs. They would actually walk backwards reading as well. And when I began to think about this, I was thinking sanctifies, separate holiness. It's hard for us to put it into our mind, isn't it? And here's what, here's what he's saying. Paul is saying in this way, you need to purify yourself and go through the process to become holy. What does that look like for you? What does that look like for me? Here's some basics of sanctification. You ready? To sanctify, to become holy. First of all, you have to be sensitive to sin. Sensitive to sin in your own personal life. Willing to call it what it is. To call a spade a spade. To say, I have blind spots. And when the Holy Spirit reveals those to you or others reveal it to you, you have to be sensitive enough to actually say, whoops, I can blow it, I have blown it. I was talking to a young man and as we were talking, he was just telling me, he was emphatic. You know, I, pastor, I feel like I'm, I'm really good. I feel like I'm on track. And he, he was about to be married. And I said, just wait till you get married. You know. I mean, this guy was so blind in the fact that he, he thought he had it all right. And I'm like, hey, just, just wait till you get married. You'll figure it out. You haven't got it all figured out. To sanctify, to be willing to be, call it a sin. To be humble is their second step of sanctification. Sensitive to sin, humble to actually repent, to actually say, I'm sorry. To be willing to say, God, please forgive me. I've offended a holy and righteous God. I'm sorry. Now, here's the last part of sanctification. You ready? The last part is this. It's actually walking away in obedience. This is where we usually stop. We ask God to forgive us. We acknowledge that we've sinned and we feel like we've humbled ourselves and we've repented. But usually what we do is we walk away and we pick it back up and we keep sinning and we keep staying in that same habit, right? But to really truly be sanctified and go through the process of sanctification means this, I'm going to become more holy, so I'm going to leave that sin, and I'm actually going to kill it. John Owens, one of the famed theologians, he wrote a book, and it was titled The Mortification of Sin, The Process of Killing Sin. We claim that we want God, but more than likely, what we do is we say we want God, but we're not willing to kill the sin that separates us from a holy God. We would rather keep those habits... You see, I would rather keep that because it makes me feel good. It brings me happiness. And here's what Paul is saying. You ready? When you're willing to become sanctified and to kill your sin, watch, that's when you'll find happiness. Your third point is this. My happiness is tethered to my holiness. You probably have never heard that before. God wants you to be happy. And here's how it happens. It doesn't happen when your spouse treats you right. It doesn't happen when everything's going great in your life. Your happiness, your satisfaction in life is not gonna be based on getting a new car or getting a new house or getting a new job or having better kids. Your your satisfaction in life is based 100% on your satisfaction in in a holy God. 
The more you're satisfied in God, the more the joy seeps through your life and you begin to be happy, not based on your circumstances or what's going on in your marriage, but based on what God is doing in your life and who God is. See, here's what happens now. I don't have to go to my wife to find happiness. For some of you in this room, you might be struggling through a marriage. Oh, you might be struggling through a divorce. You might be struggling through difficulties, pain, heartache in your life. And here's what I want, to, I want you to hear. You ready? In the midst of that pain, in the midst of your spouse not liking you, in the midst of that divorce, what God is calling you to, he's calling you to happiness, but the only way you get happiness is once you go through holiness. Your holiness or your happiness is tied to your holiness. What God is trying to do is to break you of all the dependence on everything else. And when you go through that trouble, when you go through that trial, when you go through that pain, what God is trying to move you towards is that your satisfaction and your happiness is not based on anything but him. So even in the worst marriage possible, God is still about your holiness. Did you catch that? Even in the best marriage possible, he's after your holiness. And when you go after your holiness, then it's gonna bring back around joy and a peace that passes all understanding. It doesn't mean the storm gets easier. It doesn't mean that the storm doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean that it's not painful. But what you'll find is this, you'll find a peace that passes all understanding. So here's what he does. You cannot sanctify if you're not being sanctified yourself. If you're not becoming holy, you can't move to the next part. It says, to sanctify her. So men, you ready? I'll start with you. Your first responsibility is to be holy yourself and becoming holy yourself. And when you get that right, then the next job is this. I am now, your fourth point, I am now responsible for the holiness of my spouse to encourage my spouse to become more holy. Now, I'll be honest. I can't force holiness on her. She can't force holiness on me. So don't hear me say that. It's kind of like that, that, that um, young couple that were getting married. And as they were talking through, they were going through marriage counseling. They were talking about all the questions and all the different things and theology and the Bible. What do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? And they got into a huge argument over the Bible. And she began to realize he doesn't believe the way she believes. He doesn't believe about the Bible this way. He doesn't believe about hell. All these different things. He just kind of walked through it. So she comes running home to mom and says, mom, she's crying. He doesn't, I just found out he doesn't believe about this. He doesn't, all these different things. He doesn't even believe about hell. What should I do? And mom's hugging. It's okay, honey. It's okay. You go ahead and marry him. And you you and I both will teach him what it means to be in hell. Okay, I, I just picked on that one because that was, I laughed all week. I, have you ever met somebody who they feel like that's their entire goal? Just to make you feel like you're in hell? Man, I've met people like that. You're like, golly, really? So anyway, all week I just laughed at that one. I thought that was beautiful. All right. Back to our point. Our point is this. While I'm responsible to encourage holiness, I can't force it on her. She can't force it on me. But here's the beautiful part, you ready? 
The beautiful part is when I'm going after holiness and I'm becoming satisfied in who God is and what God's doing in my life, as I go after that, here's what begins to happen. It begins to, I begin to treat her better. The fruit of the Spirit begins to come out. I begin to love her better. I begin to interact with her better. I begin to interact with the kids better. I begin to become long-suffering, patient, kind, gentle, right? And as that begins to happen and that begins to transform, it now causes her to say, wow, Heath, I like what you have. I like the way you're going. And now it draws her to me. And now we begin to grow. And there are times when she's down and my spiritual life's up and I help bring her up. And there are times when I'm down and her spiritual life begins to bring me up. And here's the priority. When I understand I'm supposed to be going after God, my holiness begins to rise. My satisfaction in God begins to rise. Now my satisfaction, watch this, and my spouse also rises. Now I'm amazed by her. Did you realize that your spouse is your spiritual sibling? Did you know that? Have you ever thought about this? My job, yes, is to encourage her spiritual life. You know why? Because she's my sister in Christ, first and foremost. I'm her brother in Christ, first and foremost. I know this blows your mind. And it will really radically, college students, it will radically change the way in which you date. You start putting this into play and you're going, Heath, nobody does that. I did. People do it. And when you begin to understand this, here's one of the criteria. And I'll just give you a criteria. When I started interacting, looking for that mate, that possibility of who should I date? One of the criteria was this. They had to be sharpening and they had to be willing and they had to interact and they had to sharpen me and challenge me even from a distance on the way in which they were living and the way in which they were going after God. If you're dating someone, college students, listen to me, or high school students, if you're dating someone and your spiritual life is tanking, you're in a bad relationship, get out. Get out. Your your person that you're dating should be challenging you and pushing you towards God. And if it's not happening, you need to get out. The spiritual sibling first. So here we are. Heath, what if, what if I'm, you know, I hear you, I like what you're saying, and yet I have a spouse who, man, they're just, they're, they're a pagan, they're a heathen, they hate God. They don't want anything to do with God. And there are people who are even here today who are maybe single in worship. You're married, but you're single in worship because your spouse doesn't want anything to do with this. It is not your job to demand and force them to come to church. It's not even your job to force them to read their Bible. You can't do it. It will only bridge, make a wedge even deeper in your relationship. But here's what you're called to do. You ready? You're still called to love and to engage and be so satisfied in God that at some point it draws them to what you have. And that's your call. 1 Corinthians chapter seven. Read that chapter, it'll begin to walk you through it. So here we are. If my holiness is tied to it, if my happiness is tied to my holiness, then I want to go after holiness first. And when I do this, here's what happens, you ready? I don't have to have that new car. I don't have to have that new house. I don't have to have my wife meeting all my needs. I become satisfied in who God is and it revolutionizes the way I'm able to interact with my wife. We can talk about romantic love later on, but now I begin to love and serve at a new level. And when pain comes through, now I have the elasticity to go through it because now I see that my God has a bigger purpose in it. And that's what I want for you. You go after 
holiness, you'll get happiness. You go after happiness, you'll miss God and you will miss the holiness challenge that he's taking you to and you'll miss what God is working in your life. 